I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I don't need to be remembered on my deathbed for what a great clothing business I had. And, you know, ultimately it's about family. You're listening to Short Black. With me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. She's a woman I've admired from afar for a very long time. She's stylish, she's got it together. I'm thrilled to welcome to Short Black Colette Dinnigan. G'day, Colette. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. Well, I know you love to cook. Then I find out the network decides to introduce you on a Celebrity MasterChef. You could have blown me over with a feather. Who knew? <laughs> I know it's something I guess that never was in my spectrum of what I wanted to do or what I thought I would do but um, it was a real challenge and it, I mean it really took me out of my comfort zone and I surprised myself by saying yes but I, I did I you know I had a blast doing it it was an emotional roller coaster there were tears there was laughter there was lots of singing and it was a great team so I think you know just when I thought I was becoming much more of an introvert and wanted to stay at home more and not meet anybody else and quite like the lockdown experience I was surprised myself totally and you know really enjoyed the team of people I was with and we had lots of fun. Throughout your career you've always put yourself out there and you know let your work be judged and this time it was about you being judged. Can you take me back to that first day you know knowing you're walking into the kitchen I would have felt so vulnerable. How did you approach it? You know, I'd never seen it before, and I, st- I tried to find um, sessions to have a look because we don't really have a, an active TV in our house. I had no idea of what to expect, really, and I had the whole kind of glamorous entry into the kitchen. I was a bit taken aback by because I didn't expect that, and I didn't expect how large the kitchen and cooking environment was and how many cameras there would be, but the camera side didn't bother me so much. It was really knowing and feeling comfortable with where everything is it's like going into a friend's kitchen and not knowing where the knives are kept or where the sugar is or where the salt is so half my time I was running around sort of chasing my tail trying to find things and getting myself into a bit of a tiz to begin with but that was quite overwhelming actually I know you love to cook so you've got your go-to recipes but this is a whole different ball game I mean did you do some extra prep and take yourself outside your own cooking comfort zone try to learn some other cuisines that you know you hadn't tried in case it was thrown at you well to be honest because I hadn't watched it and um, the producer said to me Colette look as long as you can follow a recipe and to be honest it's going and cooking your favorite comfort dish and your go-to recipe for a dinner party so I sort of thought, oh, yeah, okay, I can do that. And the first week was most definitely like that. I chose what I wanted to cook. And so I felt very comfortable, didn't need a recipe because, you know, I'm not very good at following any recipes or anything really where it's all written down. But then as the time went on, not knowing this, the challenges started happening in the last minute mystery boxes. And I had absolutely no idea about this. So suddenly I would go home every night, you know, quite like, so long days, actually, they were 12 hour days at least. And I started to practice making a cream anglaise or baking some meringue or 
all the things I'd never sort of thought of doing before because I thought if this is thrown at me, I need to know how to make ice cream. <laughs> I need to know how to make pasta. <laughs> I need to know how to do all of the different things that I suddenly realized were going to be thrown at us. And um, so I was practicing a lot of things. And I had a friend, Imogen, who, you know, she's a great cook, but she would sit there every night eating another anglaise or a different, you know, a different meringue recipe or a pavlova. It was quite funny, actually. I was getting more stressed and losing weight and she was sitting there eating all these desserts and putting on weight. It was very funny. Do you think you've benefited from the experience? And if so, how? Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I think it's really important to the show. It was a very, you know, it's, it's pretty authentic. It's very honest. I think there is a lot of drama in the editing, but it's not really, as people think, there is a clock. Everything is pretty much as you see it. But it's, it's good to um, put yourself into a different situation, especially as you get older, I think, and being out of your comfort zone, it kind of, it makes you rethink and it gets your brain working again and your senses are kind of on high alert. And sometimes I think, you know, not always, not everybody, but you can get a bit complacent and, and not challenge yourself. And that really kind of invigorated me and gave me a lot more ideas and things of other things I'd like to do. So I'm glad I did it. Yeah, look, I thought it was incredibly courageous. But when I look back at your career, there's been moments of great courage all the way through. Born in South Africa, raised in New Zealand, we all know the story. Colette Dinigan becomes the first only Australian designer to show on the prestigious Paris schedule. We all wanted a piece of Colette Dinigan in our wardrobe. You were inducted as an Australian fashion laureate. You know, you've won all the accolades. And then without warning, you upped your whole world and moved to Europe. And that takes enormous courage in itself. Yeah, no, I mean, that was another, that was a very big change in my life. I guess, you know, my career in fashion, it grew in increments. It didn't necessarily go from being an undiscovered designer to a very big designer. You know, the business did grow quickly, but it was still, as I say, it grew relatively unnoticeable to me in a way, if that makes sense. I was single, a single mother for the first few years with Estella, so it was kind of a lot easier because it was just myself and Estella. I'd need to make decisions about, and we, she spent a lot of time with me traveling to Europe, and I worked very hard, and she was always by my side in the early years. Then when I met Bradley and we got married and had Hunter, our son, it was very different. He Hunter was not at all the child that liked to travel. Bradley was like, what's the point of being together if you're always at work? You know, there were a lot of things that were kind of not so much in sync or in balance. And I thought about it and I thought, yeah, I, I don't want to be a Chanel or I don't need to be remembered on my deathbed for what a great clothing business I had. And, you know, it's just another dress. And it's, I mean, I know I say that so um, flippantly, but ultimately it's about family. And I needed to take care of that. And I needed to make sure my children were raised properly by me and uh, could instill good values and, you know, the right, the discipline that I thought was necessary, not that somebody else thought was necessary. It sounds to me like Bradley was a breath of fresh air in your life. You felt pregnant, you know, around the age of 50, correct me if I'm wrong. Lots of big changes in a second stage in your life. Was Bradley the prompt to say, listen, let's do things a bit differently? Of course, meeting him and he was a good, you know, he was a great breath of fresh air, but still he was, he had reason, you know, and so I had to consider his opinion and also how he perceived my life because for him as well, he didn't want to spend most of his time waiting for me. And I understand that. And he was also a lot younger than me. 
not that I really think the age kind of matters too much, but, you know, we did, we eloped when we got married. I didn't want another party, another group of people. You know, I, of course we want family and friends, but we didn't do it for any attention. And, um, then, yeah, shortly after I got pregnant with Hunter, which was fantastic. It was a natural pregnancy. I think I was 48 or 49 when I had him. And um, my world did change, but it wasn't a changed world that I was scared of anything. It was about just doing things with another child and a partner. So, in fact, it was a lot more fun than just being on my own. I guess with all of that, he wasn't the catalyst for me to change my business. It was me, myself and I, really, because I thought this isn't the world I want to live in anymore. I don't want to be responsible for maybe letting my children or my partner down and also the business, no, because it, it really was a 24-7 project, having Colette Dinigan Proprietary Limited and showing in Paris and traveling the world. And, and I felt very responsible as to not to let anyone down in that level. So, I mean, I know that you had been a frequent visitor to New Zealand and that place is very close to your heart and you'd spent so many years in France. Why Italy? Italy for us was a place that neither of us knew too well. We knew we loved the food and I kind of always reminded me a little of sort of a European India in a funny kind of way. It was sort of very functional but very dysfunctional at the same time and it was always kind of chaotic, which is quite the opposite to France. I mean, I think Italy also has a love olive oil as opposed to butter and um, they're the opposites but very similar I guess France and Italy I think the Italians are very good at design whereas I think the French are incredible at style you know and putting things together but so we we went to Italy we went to Rome and I'd only been there once before and we didn't know anybody and it was such a breath of fresh air everything we could do was different and I booked so many different places and we wanted to work out where we wanted to live and um the children went to school and it wasn't before long, actually. We, we ended up having a great circle of friends. It's amazing how easy it is to meet people, especially I think the Italians loved the idea of an Australian coming to Italy, not knowing anyone, and they were very welcoming. And, and as always, you know, it's about the family and the food and it's not about the car or what street you live in. And it was, it was, it was really a breath of fresh air. So it was an adventure, but, um, one, I think I also had to convince Bradley at towards the end. He's like, what are we doing? Is this crazy? And I'm like, it might be, but what have we got to lose? The, you know, we can always come home. <laughs> so I kept on saying we can come home whenever we want. We don't, you know, we're not bound by this. So at which point did you buy into Barrel and the Southern Highlands? And then at which point did you buy in Italy? I mean, you had a place in Rome, but then you bought this beautiful villa and spent years doing that up. Well, we came back after being in Rome for a year and um, Estella ended up going to school in the Highlands, so she was boarding and we decided, unlike most mothers or parents, I guess, who probably send their children to boarding school and live in the city, I thought, well, I need to be close to my daughter. So I sold, um, we sold our house in the city and moved to the Highlands so I could be close to the school. And then we were intending to go back to Italy because I realised after you know a very short period of time I'd actually bought our old farmhouse in Puglia before Rome, is that absolutely nothing would happen unless I was there. Nothing. Even though I didn't speak the language very well, nothing would happen. So we ended up going back for a few years so I could get the project finished. And in that time, we bought a place in Rome and I renovated that. And Hunter was at school there for a few years and Estella stayed here and I, we'd be traveling to and from. And finally completed the Casa Oliveta, which was, you know, a huge labor of love. But 
it's the most incredible villa to stay in. It's just surrounded by these ancient olive trees and I've restored all the old stone. There's lots of dry stone walls and it's in the middle of the country. So it's it's got this most incredible calming feeling and I think it must be the olive trees. Now, everyone I know that's ever done any business in Italy laughs hysterically about how tormented the whole process is. Patience is the key, isn't it, getting all this work done? Oh, absolutely. But, you know, I I think the thing is it was such a change for them to deal with a, a female for a start as opposed to working with, you know, probably an Italian man. It took time and it was a labour of love, but it was such a challenge on a different level, but I couldn't let it go. I really couldn't because I just didn't know. There would be times I was so frustrated and almost in tears, but I just, it was so much potential. And when you can see potential and you've got hope, I think that's one of the most important things because through that, other friends came on board, other Italians and said, if you need this, I can do this. And in the end, you know, I just traveled the country myself and I would go down, fly down once a week and talk to the builders, meet them. I would go to antique markets all over Italy or, you know, go to Belgium and find old stones and reclaim, find everything reclaimed. So, I, you know, I really enjoy that. And that was a lot of fun too. Well, moving out of fashion, you've been in interiors for some time and worked in Australia in that space. I mean, you clearly have that aesthetic that we all are so jealous of because it seems to come so easily, does it? I've always thought that, you know, I've seen a lot of numerous fashion designers who've then gone into interiors. And I think, you know, when you're designing dresses, or for me in particular, it's about having a good idea on proportion and quality and finishes and colour. I think it translates quite well. You know, often I'll go into a space and go, oh, my goodness, knock that ball down here. The ceilings have got to come down, make it lower, make it smaller, make it brighter, darker. Drives Bradley insane, particularly in hotel rooms designed by men where there's nothing to put your toiletries, no shelves anywhere. Your suitcase is at the end of the bed and you run into it all the time. (laughs) So, you know, I think that's kind of a natural progression for fashion designers where I don't think interior designers are able to, um, even though they work much further ahead than in fashion, I don't think they're able to transcend from interior space into a fashion space as well. So it's kind of interesting, the dynamic, but I I think especially proportion and finish is very important. And the textiles, you know, textiles play a huge part in, in furnishings and, you know, in interiors and making a place soft. So I don't know, I enjoy it. So where do you call home? Well, it's most definitely between Australia, Sydney and Italy now. Italy is, even though we only spent, you know, three and a half years there, it's still definitely, we've got our feet solidly on the ground there. And it's, um, I think it's going to be very difficult when it gets to the point that Hunter needs to go to secondary school. Does he do that stint in Italy or does he stay here? And, you know, there's a lot of hard decisions to be made because... It's a place now that you can go for two, three weeks of the year or a month, but you'll never get to know it until you live there because everything's to be discovered. It's not an obvious find, perhaps more so in the touristy areas, but when you're living there, it's when you really get to know the people and discover things. And, you know, I'm so passionate about, you know, just their small businesses and their craftsmanship. And I've just done a ceramic line with a couple of potters there and the fabrics that they use and just... You know, you don't get that as much in Australia. We're much sort of bolder and out there. There isn't the kind of smaller artisans that you kind of discover. So you've just launched a ceramic line. Will that be available here as well as Italy? And what's it like being Colette Dinigan in Italy when no one knows who Colette Dinigan is? Because in Australia, it's a calling card. The door opens straight away. 
Well, you know, the funny thing was, it was one of the, the decisions to go there was that I didn't think anybody would know us. And then after a few weeks in Rome, I had an email or a call from one of the Fendi's saying, we've just heard you've moved to Rome. We'd love to have you for dinner. <laughs> wow. And then I ran into Angela Massoni and then I suddenly realized I actually knew quite a few people in the fashion world that lived in Italy. And just through that kind of network, you know, I started to meet a lot of people and especially also when I edited, I was guest editor for Vogue Living. But the funny thing was most people did not know that I had stopped showing in Paris. They still thought I had my business and that it was so big it was being running it was running in Australia from afar. And the story would be, Oh, I got married in one of your dresses. My daughter just bought one of your wedding dresses. Oh, I love that. It was quite interesting because I said to Bradley, I'm I'm constantly telling people I've closed. And he said, Well, maybe you shouldn't anymore because it's too hard. They don't understand it. Why you've closed your business. Do you feel that you're quite um, linguistic now, having, you know, lived in a number of different countries? To get by every day, you must pick it up. I went to school in Rome for a few months and I was much better, you know, I kind of feel like I've lost it, not speaking it every day. But I did get very confused between my French and Italian and I, you know, when I couldn't um, find the words in Italian, I'd be speaking French and I thought that would translate very well. But most of the Italians really don't speak French. Once you cross the border, really it's Italian or it's French. It's not, you know, unless somebody travels a lot. But um, I regret that I'm not speaking it every day. And even though I think I should and try, it's a lot easier to speak English for me. It's definitely my first language. What do you think you've learned about your time in Italy? Because it was a fair stint. It was about three and a half years, but I think I closed my business probably about five years ago. But I think the time for me was what I really appreciate and about the Italians is, as I was saying before, you know, it's not about what car you drive, what school you go to, what street you live in. It's very much about the family and friendships and food. And each of the houses, you know, anybody's apartment, many or not each, but many of them, so dilapidated on the outside and the patinas maybe hundreds of years old and all that in Rome, the crumbling kind of terracotta um, or yellow sort of crusty paint peeling off. It just makes them much more enchanting and you'll go inside and you'll be in the most incredible apartment or not, but you'll still be welcome at the table and food will be generous and conversation will be generous and spirits. And I think that's what I've learned so much, really. At the end of the day, it's you don't take away material possessions. You, you take away the spirits with you when you leave any place. And I think that's something that could do a lot of people a lot of good to know that. And arguably think a little bit more about it. Maybe this conversation will help. Mm. And I think the pandemic's helped people sharpen their focus about what's more important. How's the pandemic affected you? Well, I, I guess last most of last year, from February through to September, we were in lockdown in Italy. So, you know, I can remember many conversations back to Australia and it was sort of kind of so breezy and, oh, it's be fine. And no one had any idea because I think Italy was the first country to go into lockdown, how scary it was when we, it's what you don't know, and how um, intense it was with a lot of military and police and um, you couldn't travel and the country was dead and we didn't know what was going to happen. And we were very lucky to be in Puglia at that stage, actually. I, I, well, I just said to Bradley, let's get out of Rome. I don't want to be here. And it was, it really made us sort of, I guess, focus on the family, but I always do anyway. But it also made me very anxious because of the distance of, you know, my daughter wasn't able to join us and I wasn't able to get back to Australia. I only got back once and I nearly wasn't allowed to leave again. So that was very 
that was scary for me, actually, not knowing or not being able to also control any of the situations. But I, I think, you know, now people see what is, as we were talking about, what's important, and it's about relationships and family. And even though we miss traveling so much and miss being able to just hop on a plane as Australians, we're so good at it. It's something that the Europeans aren't that good at, actually. They think, you know, the distance is too much. But um, keep life a lot more simple, I think, is my advice, because you just never know what's going to happen and you want to kind of be prepared to be malleable or be able to move with the times and and do it quite quickly and I, I think that's taught me you know you never know what's going to happen and also unfortunately you can't plan and organize as much as we used to. Well one thing no one saw coming was of course the horrendous summer of bushfires and you were in Italy at the time I believe when you found out that your house in the southern highlands had gone. Well, it was actually our house, North Rosedale, and I I was in um, Torino or near Torino in the mountains, and we woke up that morning to CNN, and it was our house that was shown as the one that was blowing up, you know, repeatedly as CNN shows the news every five minutes. So it was very, that in the distance too, in the time zones, and it was very sad, and, you know, I, I was actually... I was so upset for our wildlife and animals and those who lost their children. I really didn't, even though it was a a tragedy for us to lose a place that we were, you know, we loved, it wasn't so much that for us it was, I didn't really want to have any attention drawn to it because I thought it's a holiday house and so many people have lost so much more and all their personal belongings and, and the animals and the tragedies. Oh, it was just heartbreaking, heartbreaking to watch from a distance. You're really attracted to that part of Australia, aren't you? Yeah, I've, I've spent, you know, we've got a place in on the south coast of Milton and I moved there, I guess, a good 16 years ago. I loved it because the, you have the most beautiful, fertile dairy country soil and the beaches, they're pristine. And I think, you know, there's very few parts of Australia where you don't have a lot of the beaches have the natural bushland reserve right to them. And it just makes it so... I don't know, it's just something I love about Australia, like Western Australia as well, in Broome, you know, where you have the beautiful turquoise sea, those white sandy beaches, the red earth, and then that, the hue of eucalyptus trees. And the south coast really does have that. And, and Rosedale's even further south than Milton. And why I fell in love with it was the same, kind of that turquoise sea, the beautiful beaches, but it really where we were, we were on a peninsula that was just totally covered in native bush and eucalyptus trees. And it's one of the bays right in front of the houses where the whales come into calf. So it's, you know, it's very special. And unfortunately, it was a detriment, you know. It was the fire just took all those trees and all the houses. And I think there's only two houses left in the whole peninsula that didn't burn. But it was the oil, the eucalyptus oil just made for, you know, it was cindering, smouldering. Just everything went. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So you've come back and you're living in Barrel at the moment. Yes. You branched out again where you're creating these opportunities for people to come and spend time in your home with celebrity chefs. What's prompted that whole idea and what's the take-up being like? I can imagine, you know, who doesn't want to have dinner with Colette and Bradley and be, <laughs> and be fed by a gourmet chef? Well, I think we were going to do that in Italy, especially for a lot of Australians, because people would come to Italy and just ask all the time, what are your favourite restaurants in Rome? What do you do here? Where do you go there? And we would always be, we'd be doing sort of personalised travel guides for all of our friends and people we didn't know, actually, just constantly because we wanted them to see the Italy we loved. And then when we came back here, I was talking to um, Kerry McCullum. She said, why don't you do it here? I was like, well, you know, it's not quite the same because in Italy, whether, you know, you're on the Puglia and the Melfi Coast, everywhere you turn is either a truly or an olive tree. It's all the beauty's there. Whereas in Australia, unless it's going to be an outback kind of an experience or you kind of need to create, for us anyway, a lot of the experiences and they're not all in the same area. So she managed to talk me into that and it was great because pulling it all together because we had, you know, our friends who, um, Ewan McCash, has like a lot of oyster leases and all his oysters are organically seeded. So there's a lot of sustainability growers who are sustainable and chefs that like to work with local produce. And, you know, we had Luke Scaberas, an artist who was going to do still life drawing classes. So it was really about, I guess, putting yourself slightly out of your comfort zone and doing things that were like catching the lobsters and diving for them yourself or the abalone and then having them cooked for you and great wines. It's a very small group. And ultimately, it was really about the conversations around the campfire and talking to people. And I think, you know, it was quite intimate. But at the same time, you could do as much or as little. You could learn to cook if you wanted to, or you could just sit back and eat the food. But you know what makes a good dinner party is good conversation. What's your conversation trick to make a dinner party work with strangers? Because that makes me a little bit nervous. You know, I'm actually not very good. I'm a very private person. I'm very shy. So I'm not the one to go to a dinner party if I don't know who's going to be there. And often if I'm sort of seated where people think, oh, let's decide to break up all the couples. I'm oh, no, don't do that. I won't know anybody. Please don't do that. (laughs) Perhaps I'm not the right person to ask because I am not that good at it at all. If it was a work situation, I'm fine because it's, you know. You're talking about what you know. Exactly, or what I don't know or wanting to learn something. But in a private, more intimate situation where I don't know anybody, I'm the wrong person to ask about what's my go-to conversation because I'm usually so frightened. But that's what I think surprised me and impressed me when I saw that you were doing these tours through the eyes of Colette and Bradley and all the things they love, was that you are an intensely private person and you have to open yourself up to do this. Well, I think, you know what, I, I love to cook and, you know, I'm very, I had the support of all my friends and these experiences. In fact, I'm working with every single person I already know very well. And instead of, you know, like even talking to Hugh Stewart, who's, you know, one of Australia's best portrait photographers, I think, he he was like, what the hell? Of course, let's do things we've never done before. He said, what's the difference? Anyway, we all sit around and have a wonderful night, play music and play cards and eat good food and drink wine why not have a few people we don't know and I'm sure they'd love it and it's time to say yes to something that we wouldn't do rather than have an agent who kind of tends to throw us out you know with a big fee in front and it's all very different so 
Guillaume, I've known Guillaume and Neil Perry. I mean, I've got a lot of chef friends, I think, because I love food so much for years and years and years. And it's kind of, it's not like work, but it is in a way. We just know each other so well. And I think we're all crazy enough to know that, you know, each other's pitfalls and where we shine. And, and I think that's, you know, as creative people, you just sometimes, you surprise yourself and surprise others because you never know what you're going to do next and we're up for it. Now, having an aesthetic is your trademark, really. But given your experience and your pedigree in the fashion world and, and now interiors, um, people also look at you all the time. How do you deal with that judgment or assessment? Do you care? Do you have moments where you're quite self-conscious or, or are you pretty relaxed about who you are and the skin you've got? Of course I have. I think I've never met any woman or any model in my life that's gone, I feel fabulous, I'm so perfect. And so everybody, even, you know, Helena Christensen, I can remember doing a photo shoot with her. She recently had her child. I can't remember how many months. And she was like, oh, I can't do it. Look at this. And I think, oh, my God, you are so beautiful. No matter how you look, you're beautiful. But she also had the personality to carry everything off. And I, I think it's most women don't feel comfortable. There's always something, or most people, there's always something that kind of you and I think you just have to look at the positive sides of what you think are good about you and, and no I don't love getting a few more wrinkles and feeling a bit older and you know my back goes a bit more every day but at the same time I look at women who have a lot of surgery done and you can't see them anymore and to age gracefully or to age you know if you look after your body and your health in a way that's eating good food and exercising you can't pay for that you know it just has to be in you and I think we need to spend more and more time doing that and that's what I kind of try and encourage my children to do but of course they've got youth on their side and they're not interested in what I have to say. Well we're, we're listening Colette we're <laughs> listening so so what how do you stay so healthy and well do you care about fitness and if so what do you do? Yeah, no, I do. I mean, I, I'm gardening constantly. Even in Italy, I was sort of, I'm, I never actually sit down at a desk. I'm not, you know, I'm always on the go. Prior to having a salary, I used to run a lot, you know, as far as Gump. I'd run through Paris, I'd run through New York, everything. I wouldn't stop running. But, you know, now I, I go to the gym and I go every morning, five days a week, which just kind of kills me. And I do yoga. I do Pilates once a week, yoga once a week. I do it all early in the morning, which also kills me because I'm not a morning person. Do you swim? No, I used to. No, not really because I don't like cold water. I like it in Europe. I love the Mediterranean, that fine, sweet, salty sea. It's kind of different. No wonder you gravitate to Italy. <laughs> but I think, you know, and I, we have everything in our garden I grow. I really try and discipline myself because when it comes to dinner, you know, I'm very happy to have a great roast chicken with roast potatoes and lots of good wine. So I make sure there's a balance. I'm not someone to watch the scales. In fact, I don't own any. My go-to measure is, you know, how I fit in my clothes and how I feel. Sounds like you might be the same. No, I'm exactly the same. And, you know, I still have things I think, oh, I better keep that because one day I might fit that again. <laughs> that makes me so happy, Colette. That makes me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you know, I've, I've decided that, that not eating in the morning is actually a good thing because I can remember everybody used to say the first meal of the day is so important. 
But I actually think it's not as important as that kind of fasting is quite good, but it's true. You, you don't, not having scales, not living by it, you kind of tend to know your body as you get older. And that's the worst thing, as you know, when you kind of should go, oh, no, not that cake today. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to say, if you had a choice between the three meals of the day, you've already ruled out breakfast. What do you prefer, lunch or dinner? Or dinner, of course. I don't, I probably prefer lunch on a day where I don't have to go to work and it can be long and lounging with good friends and good wine. Yeah, but that's Italy. <laughs> See? And when we, first went, when, we, when we first went to Italy, we weren't just doing missing. We were actually, we loved going to the breakfast bars and standing up and having a little latte. Brady would have his rum barber. We'd talk about where are we going for lunch today. What's rum barber? It's like almost a sponge soaked in rum. Okay. With this little espresso and um, for lunch we'd go to one of our favourite restaurants and we would start having those long lunches with wine and then we'd be having dinner and we just thought, okay, this has got to stop. We, and so we, we cut out the lunches and um, just... You have to choose, don't you? You have to choose. Otherwise, you know, it really was becoming a, a very long-term holiday and the kilos were going on even though we were walking so much. We had to give something up and lunches went and dinner stayed. Throughout your fashion career, you know, fine fabrics were your trademark. But you also have this beautiful country sort of home life. And I'm always seeing you in all these amazing linens. Now, I personally love linen, but I hate the whole thought of ironing it. And my grew up with a mother that would say, no, 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 with linen, it was like I look like a dish rag. What's the key to wearing so much linen and always looking so fine? I always iron my linen in Italy, but it's funny because we have a very good friend, Odor, he um, said to Bradley, you know, Bradley, now that you're over 30, unless there's a high probability that you're going to be going swimming, please don't wear your linen shorts <laughs> or wear shorts. And I think that's kind of the Italians. It's like in summer they wear linens and in winter they wear wool and they always look immaculate. But it's kind of that you need to have a good quality linen that's crisp at the start and it's got to be fine, I think. And and also the cut, sometimes, you know, linen can lose its colour. So I always think stick to its the natural kind of colours like the naturals or the whites, so it's always fresh. Whereas, you know, if, if you have a black linen and you wash it a few times, it ends up having that charcoal-y grey kind of feel to it. It never feels as elegant or as fresh as something that's white. And I think... The, one of the key things with linen is stick to white or natural. Do you have a special knack when it comes to keeping linen looking crisp and fresh? I shouldn't probably throw everything in the washing machine, but I do. But I don't put it in the dryer. I always hang dry and I iron up when it's damp. See, I knew if I asked enough questions, Colette, you would hand over reluctantly a trip to your marvellous linen. Now, there's another thing that you just happen to do as well, and that's you've become a bit of an author. You've written a couple of books, and one's just out at the moment. It's a brand new one, inspired by your son. Tell me about that. Um, yeah, Santa Loves Australia, because I, I did a children's book, when was it, a couple of years ago now, I think, came out, called Louis Instantly Save the Sea, and it was really you know, a children's book as well about dreaming of you know, adventure in the sea. And this one's about Santa coming to Australia and his journey across the Northern Territory and down through Uluru, over Uluru and the Great Barrier Reef. And I really wanted the idea, you know, where does Santa go before to resonate with children and also that anticipation of what was going to happen. But to kind of document his journey through our flora and fauna and, you know, the geography of Australia. Because it's such a big country and for young children, I think they get quite confused with all the different states and what each state might represent. And um, as always with my children's books, I put quite a complex glossary in the back so people can learn the Aboriginal names and the different 
behaviors of these birds and animals and um, you know very small history of perhaps each place so it's a lot of fun to do and I think you know even for a lot of adults it's great for them to read with their children because even researching it you know I, I learned a lot about a lot of different animals and you know even cockatoos that they live to the age of 80 I mean that's quite incredible isn't it don't you think well I do but what I do think is a bit incredible is what you can't do I mean you just turn your hand to being an author designer interiors fashion the list goes on was there any hesitation in deciding to write a book no actually and again I worked with um, Luke who's a friend of mine who's the artist Luke Scaberis and he's normally a landscape artist but he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a great idea. And then when it came to doing it, he's like, oh, Colette, oh, I'm just not I'm not in a good patch at the moment. Can you find someone else? I'm like, Luke, you have to do this because we're going to print and I'll do all the rough sketches for you and you can just make your interpretation. And he was like, oh, just so busy. I've got my exhibition coming up. And it was very funny because it's, I, he sounded like me normally. You know, I'm, the ideas at the beginning I have so many great ideas, but when you get closer to them, it's that's when you start cleaning the house. It's like a child who has to do an assignment for homework or something. Suddenly you clean your bedroom because you don't want to start. And I often feel like I have lots of great ideas, but it's actually pushing myself to complete or realize them. And I think, and I make that a, I guess the thing for me that it's my challenge that I always want to, if I have an idea, I want to realize it. I don't want to be the person that sits around talking about it and, and or criticizing anybody else who does it badly because I know how difficult everything is to actually commercialize or realize. Sounds to me like you don't want to live a life of regrets. No, I don't. I don't think anybody should. And I, I think, you know, I, I'm also at a point too, you know, I look, what seems to be that I'm very confident in a lot of areas, but I'm I'm actually not. And you just try your best and you've got to have hope. And I think I have a lot of setbacks and, you know, failures and I fall down a lot, but that's how you learn. You've got to just pick yourself up and don't worry about what other people think. You really can't. And no matter how small a project you might do, it might not be writing a children's book. It might be writing a short story for your only child or your family. Just to do it is a great thing because it can lead to something else. So I don't think, you know, sometimes you can set your sights high or you can bring it right down. It's not, I don't know, you just got to give it a go. Well, you've certainly given it a go, Colette. That's an understatement. I somehow think Colette might be a pseudonym for courage because you've demonstrated so much. And then to sort of see the brave choices you've made in the last five to ten years has been really so inspiring. You remind us all about what's important in life. Colette, you've been a joy to talk with today. Wishing you all the very best for Celebrity MasterChef. I don't want to know the outcome. I don't want to know what happens. I want to watch with uh, the rest of the viewing audience. But um, wishing you the best of luck always. Sending much love. And thanks so much for spending time with us here at Short Black. Oh, thank you. And thank you for being so complimentary. Gosh, my ego. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.